So here's the one with the sword that comes out of his mouth. Now, you can't imagine what that would look like, but it's, it's uh, you know, it, it must be the most powerful thing because Jesus created the world and the universe with a word. He spoke. Now, that word is double-edged. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. So he has that sword. It's like it's going to divide soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything will be uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him who, to whom we must give an account. Now, he's a powerful God. That comes out of his mouth. That comes out of his mouth. Judgment. That's what it means. That's a sort of judgment. The word. With his word, he can give you eternal life or he can condemn you for eternity. With his word. Two ways. Bang, bang. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation. Revelation. Chapter 2. Lord, we just we need you now. Holy Spirit, we ask that your presence will be here. Holy Spirit, we ask that you move in all of our minds and all of our hearts and stir us and help us to see deep things in your word. Reveal to us wonderful treasures that are hidden in the word of God and uh, help us not to just uh, stimulate us intellectually, but turn our hearts to live righteous holy lives in you Lord Jesus and help us to become stronger, better Christians Lord, so that uh, your church may shine before men and so Lord we need you now we need your spirit to do a mighty mighty work this morning and uh, guide me also with the words that I say, may it be may they be spirit led words may there be none of rod but all of God may the words touch every heart and life here and uh, just direct the course of everything that is said today. And I pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. If you ever have prayer requests, just let me know. Write them on a piece of paper or something. Give them to me and we'll, we'll pray. Amen. We've seen some great miracles, haven't we? Here's a walking miracle over in the corner here. John, whose heart was restored uh, better than it was, what, seven years ago? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, an absolute miracle went on there at a, at a point in your life where it was a very touch and go moment. So there's a, a miracle there. Also right at the back here, Joyce, and a miracle occur in her body. Um, ulcerative colitis. colitis was healed by the power of God. So isn't that awesome? Yes. Also Bill's um, uh, sister-in-law, Lloydie, had a brain tumour. And her mum, who's a born-again Christian, and we as a church will pray and pray and pray and pray. And we saw her healed. I mean, she walked out of that hospital to mesmerise the doctors. You know, so... God still heals. Amen. We've got to believe that. We've got to know that. All right. So Revelation. This is just an uh, overview of the churches. Uh, and the breakdown is each of the seven letters begin with a description of the one writing the letter. So if we go to these letters, we, and if you saw, uh, saw, heard the sermon last week, if you were here for the sermon last week, we went through the history of the seven churches and we went through a lot of other things, the different views of the seven churches, the historicist view, which is shared by many futurists as well, um, of the seven churches. Um, there was a lot of information, amen? Who went home with overload? Yeah. Well, that's good. You could chew over it. A bit of indigestion, it will go down eventually. Um, but uh, the sermons should be online soon, so you can watch it and, 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 and absorb it. Um, but... 
the, first, the outline of the way the letters are written, they always begin to all these seven churches. Now remember, these are letters, these are epistles. These are seven extra epistles in the New Testament. And all the epistles, or nearly all of them, were written to churches, or at least to the leaders of churches, like as in with Timothy. Now they were written to churches, and they were exhorting that particular church. Even Paul's letters would be to one particular church for... Uh, for reaching into the needs of that church but it applies to us today amen because the funny thing is the church hasn't changed a lot in the sense of where we still uh, confront the same problems that were confronted back then we still have a sin problem and you're going to find with these seven churches that there's sin problems in the seven churches so we can take from these churches and apply the the exhortations and, and so on to our life as well um, some things may apply, some things may not, because not all seven churches have the same, you know, uh, rebukes and, and, you know, corrections that were necessary. So we're going to look at look at that. But the first part was the description of the one writing the letter, and it's always like in in chapter two. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars, which are the seven angels of the seven churches, in his right hand, and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. He walks among the churches. Now, what's that, what that is saying to us is Jesus walks among the church. So right now, if, we, if two or more are gathered together, there he is in the midst of us. He is walking. You know, and if he's knocking at the door, we say, come in, Lord. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. We don't want him to feel like he's locked out. Now, there's many churches today that have locked him out. That, there's many churches today that can't even mention Jesus Christ in the sermon. Jesus Christ can't be mentioned. Now, that's crazy, isn't it? I thought Jesus started the church. So why would you not allow the guy that started the church to be mentioned in the church? Anyway, but it's strange where churches are gone. So we don't want to make sure we haven't locked Jesus Christ out. I'm always welcoming Jesus. Are we always welcoming Jesus into yes. our lives? Come in, come in, Lord. Walk among the lampstands or walk among the living stones, as it were, in this church. So that's who Jesus is. And he always starts his sermons, uh, or we, we could call them sermons, letters to each of the churches. If you go down to verse... Uh, my eyes, so I have to get glasses. Verse 8. These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. So when he said, I'm the first and the last, he's saying these are the words of God. You know, these people that don't believe Jesus is God. Do you know there's a huge movement? And it's not just JWs and Christian Dolphins. There is a massive movement of Christians in secular churches who do not believe that Jesus is God, who do not believe that Trinity is in, because the word Trinity is not in the Bible, therefore it's not biblical. The word Trinity is a description of a doctrine in the Bible. It's just a name of a doctrine. It doesn't have to be in there to mean it. It's real. But God is a father. There's Father God. He has a son who's of the same nature as him, Jesus. And there is the Holy Spirit who Jesus had to ascend to the Father to send. So we have a trinity there. He says, baptize in the Great Commission, baptize him in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we have Jesus describing himself. Now, I talked about that a little bit last week. That's just the recap. Uh, the second thing that Jesus would do, would he would point out the deeds of the church. That, so there'd be commendations. He would commend them for things. And he'd rebuke them for things. And it, there's a lot of other things. He'd bless them and, and so on. The third thing, he'd always finish by explaining to the church the blessing that will be received if you overcome. 
Now that layout is consistent in all seven letters. The good and the bad. There's two good churches, there's five not so good churches. <laughs> the good, the bad, and the ugly, I was going to write that. <laughs> I don't want to say any church is ugly. Where's the music to it? <laughs> yeah, so two churches were commended, Smyrna and Philadelphia, and five were not, Ephesus, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, and Laodicea. And I think the worst was Laodicea. And according to the historicist uh, belief, and many futurists belief, is this age, is we call it the Laodicean age of the church the last age before the return of Christ. We'll start with Ephesus. I know your deeds. You know Jesus is going to say that to every single Christian on Judgment Day. He's going to go, I know your deeds, and you're going to be completely exposed. You know, he's going to see right through. You'll be transparent before God. Actually, he's going to know more things about you than you know about yourself. Because how many of you can remember every last deed that you've done in your life? God can. Actually, it's all written. He knows every secret thing. Not just every deed, every thought, every careless word. You know, how much do we need the blood of Jesus? How much do we need his forgiveness? How much can, do we need to rest in him and say, Lord, thank you. I, I'm not worthy of this, but you've forgiven me. I know your deeds. So let's read it. Revelation Two, chapter, uh, verse 2 to 6. And it says, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have preserved or persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favour. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So God has hates. He hates those practices. He hates the, the, the things that the Nicolaitans stood for and the, what they taught. So in that, he, he commended them for hard work and perseverance. You know, so this was a church that really you know, did everything in their strength to see that the gospel was spread, that they reached people with the gospel, that they preached the word of God. They were probably sticklers to the truth and, and doctrinally accurate he commended them because they didn't tolerate wicked men. And you know, as Christians, sometimes you can tolerate wickedness, can't you? And in this age, can you tolerate wickedness and wicked people more often than not? Sometimes just to get along in the workplace, you've got to tolerate. But in the church, should you tolerate it? It shouldn't be tolerated if wicked men come in and they're doing wicked things. You don't tolerate them. Obviously, in that time, there was, that was going on and they stood opposed to that, which would have brought them persecution. They were commended for having tested the apostles and found them false. That these men who were, were going around, uh, obviously, after the time of, or during, during and after the time of Paul and Peter and all the actual designated apostles, these guys were coming around saying, I'm an apostle. And then they were tested. They tested them. They didn't just accept them at their word. They wanted to see fruit. 
And so they were tested. And you know, we, in a sense, you know, you want to test me, make sure that I'm bearing fruit for the kingdom, that what I say is true. And you know, test me like a Berean. Amen. And so you've got to test things today, especially today with the church that in many respects, I'm not saying the whole church because there is a remnant going, a very strong remnant. We've got to test the things that we listen to, the things that we believe in. Do you know that we're living in an age where there's more ministers ministering through mediums like YouTube than ever in history, that you've got the pick of thousands, tens of thousands of ministers, and you can listen to this guy and this guy and this guy, and, you know, and the list goes on and on and on and on. You've got to test, is it true? We've got to, get, we've got to make sure that we, like the Ephesus church, that we can be commended for being that particular with what we listen to. Because what goes in here has a great effect on us. Amen? And people have been deceived with slight varying truths. You know, good Christians have slipped into Jehovah Witnesses camps. Good witnesses have become Mormon are good witnesses. Good Christians have become Mormons and got led astray in their hypocrisy. And you've got to be careful because you know none of us are, you know, um, completely safe from getting misled. Amen. But as a church, the church should be a place, a safe haven where we can come and the word of God can be preached and we can be sure we're standing on the rock. Amen. They were also commended for perseverance. For persevering. I received the word this week about perseverance. For perseverance and enduring hardships. Because in that time in the early church, they were tremendously, or suffering tremendously. They were under persecution all the time. And they persevered under this. They continued to be a church, even if they had to hide, even if they had to meet in others' homes, even if they had to, you know, lock the doors like when Peter was, um, you know, miraculously led out of prison. He went to a house where there was a church meeting going on, an all-night prayer meeting for Peter, and they were locked inside, weren't they? He had to knock on the door repeatedly to get the door to open because they were locked in. They had to lock themselves away for safety. Because the church was a hated people. The Christians were hated. And Jesus even said, if, if they hated me, they'll hate you also. So the true Christians will, that would be a sign that we've, we are true Christians, is we will be a persecuted people to a degree. In, thankfully, uh, in this country, we can be Christian and not suffer at that, those levels of persecution. We don't get our churches burnt down yet. Yeah. They can't burn this one down. It's a community centre. <laughs> so imagine that. We've burnt down the church. No, yeah. Community centres in an outrage. Sorry? It's, yeah, we're safe here. Right. But they were rebuked for forsaking, what does it say here? Their first love. Who's ever had that um, uh, sort of rebuke in your own heart? You know, who's ever been, you know, when, when you've been a Christian for a long time and you, you might have had 20 years of being a Christian or 30 years or 40 years or so on, there's periods where you lapse in your passion. Who's had that? Yeah? But in my short time, because, you know, 20 something years, what am I, 27 years, 28 years a Christian, I've had periods where I've lapsed in my first love. And I'm sure if it happened to me, it must have happened to you guys as well. And you feel like, why don't I love Jesus like I, I used to love him? Why don't I pray 
like I used to pray? Why don't I want to go to church like I used to want to go? Why do I have I feel like I've forsaken my first love? You know? And it's like, you know, a relationship, a husband and wife relationship, and it's on it's just not good anymore. We've got to do things. You know, when your husband and wife is you're you're teetering on the brink of destruction, you've got to do something. You know, people go to counselling or people start, you know, a husband start bringing home flowers every day or something. Rekindle it. You know what I mean? If a fire is dying down, stick a stoke in there, you know, and get some kindling and throw it on there and get the thing going again. And that's what we've got to do with Jesus. We've got to get it going again. I'm not saying it like I'm sure there's many of you here that have got that passion for Jesus Christ. But if it's waning, you know, Jesus actually rebukes them for that. Don't let your love go cold. Don't let your love towards me grow cold. You know? We've got to do something. We've got to take measures to ensure that we don't. And which is one of the measures of the church. Really, the church is instituted to keep people hot for God. That's what it's all about. Keeping them passionate. Keeping them in love with Jesus. Keeping them mesmerised by the glory of God. You know? And then they were exhorted. So he, he said, you've forsaken your first love. But he then exhorted them and encouraged them. And he said, repent. You know, if you've forsaken your first love, you've got to repent. You've got to say sorry. Just like, uh, you know, a husband and wife in their relationship, if it's not going well, they've got to say sorry. My eyes haven't been on you. I've been consumed with my work and my career or whatever. You know how people can get consumed in all sorts of things. You've got to repent and do the things you did at first. We've got to do what we did at first. So you've got to go back in your memory. What was I like at first? I was at every prayer meeting. I was at every church service. I was just in love with Jesus. And if people needed prayer, I was there. And, I'm, and you've got to make yourself, you know. And that, that's what uh, sometimes I, I come to church. And today was a particular day where I felt like I dragged my feet to get here. And it's one of those things that, you know, the moment you, you as, a, as, a, as a pastor, I've got to just turn it on. I've got to say, come on, let's do it. And the beautiful thing about this church is everyone's got a beautiful smile and they make me feel so welcome and love. You know, they, I feel the love coming towards me and so I, it lifts me. Amen. Is, and that's what it should do. It should lift you. It should make you feel like, yes, I want to be here. And so you've got to re repent of those things and do what you did at first. Do the good things we did at first. But then Jesus just adds to that, just in case you go home and forget about it for the rest of the week. <laughs> Which can happen, you get, who's had the, you've been in a, a service, you've just heard the best sermon you've ever heard in your life, or at least that year or whatever. You hear the best sermon, yes, yes, I'm going to change all these things in my life, and then Monday, I can't remember what was said. You know, what was that sermon about again? I can't even remember. What were the things that I planned to do? And then the day gets you and you have to go off to work and, and your mind's consumed with that and you forget. So Jesus adds a little warning here. As Jesus does, warning, if they do not repent, or if you do, if you do not repent, the church of Ephesus, and it relates as epistles, it relates to all of us. If we do not repent, our lampstand will be removed. Now, what's a lampstand? Let's see how many have been paying attention. How many? What's a lampstand? Church. It's the church. 
So what he's saying is the Ephesus church will be removed. And I believe it was. So they didn't take the warning. So we gotta, we've got to repent and do the things we did at first as a church, as a people. And, and when, when it's the funny thing when you say it, you say it, it's said to the whole church, but it's said to everyone in the church individually. It's an individual, you know, uh, exhortation to people individually in the church. And then he commended them again, uh, but you also hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which he also hates. He hates those practices. So the question is, what were the practices, uh, or who were the Nicolaitans, and what were their practices? So I went to uh, uh, Google, and, and gotquestions.org is a good one. Uh, uh, that, that guy's done a lot of writing. I've got question He's got an answer for every single question you can ask about the Bible. Um, some are better, some answers are better than others, and he just had some really good answers here. Gotquestions.org says, the exact origin of the Nicolaitans is unclear. Some Bible commentators believe that they were a heretical sect who followed the teachings of Nicholas, whose name means one who conquers the people, who was possibly one of the deacons of the early church mentioned in Acts 6.5, it is possible that Nicholas became an apostate, denying the true faith and became part of a group holding the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Israel to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. That's one answer to who they were. The other is, uh, they, other commentators believe that these Nicolaitans were not so called from any man, but from the Greek word, Greek word Nicola, meaning let us eat. So essentially meaning the you know, same sins that they're into. In those days, they would sin by eating food sacrificed to idols. Now, Paul discusses this in his letter, and he says, you know, if, he, if you eat food, uh, sacrifice to idols, but you know nothing about it, it doesn't affect you. Um, but if someone sees you eating it and knows, and that person's conscience is weak, it affects them. But if you're eating food sacrificed to idols in a celebrationary feast, in acknowledging that food, then no Christian should eat it. You know, if someone came in here with a, you know, a lamb on a spit and said, we've just sacrificed this to Satan, let's eat it. Only the Greeks would eat it. Um, okay. <laughs> no, I was like, it doesn't worry me. <laughs> no, the, uh, you don't eat it. You don't eat it, do you? Uh, Bill? <laughs> He'll wait till we all leave. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, you, you've got to be careful of food sacrifice idols. Not that we have trouble with that. However, you know, for people who has a weak conscience, there's food um, that is sacrificed, a halal form, and, you know, the animals are supposedly all facing towards Mecca, and that's big in Adelaide now, isn't it? Mm. Actually, there's everyone puts it on their cheeses, it puts it on their food articles, and, you know, food, uh, halal-approved food. You know, how did they sacrifice the cheese to Mecca? You slice it towards Mecca. I don't know. But um, if that doesn't worry me. That doesn't, does it worry you? But if you've got a weak conscience and you have a worry about it, Paul says, then for that person, don't eat it. And if I was with someone who had a problem with eating halal meats, I wouldn't eat it for their conscience. So I probably shouldn't be saying that I would eat it because it might affect their weak conscience. But Paul does cover that. But that, there seems to be more problems than just that today, doesn't there? There's, 
there's a lot. But back in those days, that was a big issue because they would have feasts in honour of that. And so the word Nicola means let us eat. And as, uh, as they often encourage each other to eat things offered to idols. Whichever theory is true, it is true that the deeds of the Nicolaitans were an abomination to Christ. They, like the Gnostics and other false teachers, abused the doctrine of grace and tried to in introduce licentiousness in its place. So they weren't a good group. And it all seems to come back to Balaam and um, uh, Baal, the worship of Baal and idol sacrifice and all that sort of stuff. And sexual immorality is always wrapped in with it all. Now Smyrna, Smyrna was one of the, uh, the better churches, the good churches. It's um, the com more commendations than anything. So let's read the letter to Smyrna, chapter 2, verse 9. And it says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you'll suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Wow. That's, that's a beautiful uh, commendation. They were afflicted and poor. He was, they were commended for how afflicted they were and how poor and we believe that could be financially. They didn't have much money. Maybe they, were, they couldn't get work in those cities because they were rejected to the point. And they, but they held strong despite. Their encouragement was from Jesus, yet they are rich. He said, okay, you don't have much money and you're afflicted and you're probably not a very strong people. Who knows? But you are rich in my side. You know, it was a beautitude, really. You're poor, but you are rich. He sees this. He sees the opposition from false Jews of the synagogue of Satan. And we're going to talk about the synagogue of Satan in a second. But, and he exhorted them, don't be afraid of coming suffering. You know, imagine this letter coming to us. Hey, Blessed Hope Chapel, don't, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. This is Jesus telling us, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you'll suffer persecution for ten days but be faithful even to the point of death and you're seen in the crown of life. You know, many people are going through that right now in other countries. The hardest thing for Christians in this day and age in, in a peacetime society like Adelaide, Australia, and even some America to the most part, and Canada, and, is for Christians to get their head around that what happens if Jesus calls us to that? We've got to be faithful, don't we? Yes. Regardless. You know, Jesus is not just um, the, the Christ of the blessed. He's also the Christ of those that are persecuted. You know, we live in a blessed country. We are blessed beyond imagination. You know, we take one of the uh, a house, one of the worst houses in Elizabeth and place it in somewhere in another country and it'll be like a mansion. You know? So we, we are a blessed people, and that blessing can be nearly a curse in many respects. It can make our love grow cold, you know, because we've got everything. And we're going to talk about that at length when it comes to Laodicea, because Laodicea was a rich city. 
probably the richest city at that time. And all the corrections are in relation to that very blessing that they have. So warning, the devil will imprison them for 10 days. So obviously that whole 10 days thing, people always think they try to apply that to, to the modern time. I think that was just a very personal thing to the church, a 10-day persecution that was going to come upon them, imprisonment for 10 days. Um, I wouldn't try to apply that to today because, you know, if anyone knows um, Richard Wombrand, who, who knows Richard Wombrand, mm -hmm. read some of his works, he was in prison for, I think, all, all told, about 15 years. First half was under the Nazis and the second half under uh, Stalin. It was a dreadful, dreadful persecution that he went through. I think it was under Stalin. But anyway, he was persecuted and tortured on a daily basis. And at the end of it, he had a witness and he started Voice of the Martyrs. Who's heard of Voice of the Martyrs? Yes. And he had a witness that was so powerful that he started Voice of the Martyrs and started helping martyrs or people that were in those situations all around the world. Um, incredible witness. He, he would come into churches and he would take his shirt off and his body was just lacerated, healed but lacerated all over, all over. And he was showing what he suffered for Christ. What he suffered for Christ. So uh, powerful witness, powerful witness, especially to the Western church who are not used to seeing those kinds of things uh, when you relate you know you don't relate that stuff to Christianity but we should we should see it because it's all in all through the Bible through much tribulation much persecution we will enter what does it say enter the kingdom of heaven and he exhorted them to be faithful even to death and I will give you the crown of life so one thing I, I did with that and this is many many years ago I resolved in my heart that as a Christian, I will hold unto death myself, my belief in Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. And I will not let anyone take that from me. You can take everything else. Justin Martyr was famous for saying, you can kill this body, but you can really do me no real harm. You know, because this is, this is temporary, isn't it? This is a tent. Actually, if someone is, is doing that to you, you say, thank you. Get rid of this thing. I want to go. <laughs> Thank you. You're doing me a blessing. You're blessing me. Thank you. Don't make them think twice. Do you know how many people have turned to Jesus through that sort of faithful witness in those days? You know, when they've been, you know, put through testings and trials like you wouldn't believe. If you really want to get a wake-up call to what true Christianity is, read Fox's Book of Martyrs. It really does blow your mind. You just think, man, this is a Christianity I know nothing about. You know, and it really does wake you up to what true Christianity was and what the true disciples were. The, the, the 12 apostles were all martyred, except John. Well, John was martyred, but he, he lived through it. He survived it. He was put in a, 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 a cauldron of boiling hot oil, but it didn't harm him. And it freaked out the emperor. And they sent him to Patmos, where he wrote the book of Revelation. So it was all in God's will. But that's powerful. It's a powerful witness. Our, the founding fathers, those who wrote these letters, shed their blood. And then right through history, the, there's a, a remnant that just trace, you can trace right through history. And they all shed their blood for the gospel. And that's, that's powerful. Now, do you have to be a martyr to actually prove you're a Christian? No, not at all. But what does the word martyr mean anyway? It means witness. 
And he says, you, Jesus says in the great, um, great Commission, part of the Great Commission is, you will be my witnesses. And witness in Greek is, is martyr. So that's what they were commended for. They were commended for being a church that stood the test under great and severe persecution. Now the synagogue of Satan, let's turn to John 8. If we could turn to John. It says, I am telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you do and you do what you have heard from your father. And then they answered, Abraham is our father. And then Jesus said, If you were Abraham's children, then you would do the things Abraham did. As it is, you are determined to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the things your own father does. And then they answered, We are not illegitimate children. The only father we have is God himself. And Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and now am here. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so on. So who's the father of these Pharisees? Satan. Satan. Says it clearly. So the synagogue of Satan were some Pharisees at the time, because many Pharisees turned to the faith. So the synagogue of Satan was a group of unbelieving Jews who were persecuting Christians. These groups were guilty of slandering the church in Smyrna and opposing the church in Philadelphia in some way. The synagogue of Satan say they are Jews, the people of God, and they persecute those who believe in Jesus, the Messiah, the true people of God. When, when we say that, um, I, I believe that true Jews become Christian. True Jews will turn to Jesus. And Gentiles are grafted in to that heritage. All, right? All of the early apostles were, what nationality? Jewish. Jesus was a Jew. And what did Jesus say about the Jews? Salvation comes from the Jews. So we are grafted in to the cultivated olive tree. Who's the cultivated olive tree? Jews. Yeah. So this replacement stuff is crazy. We don't replace uh, the Jewish race. We embrace our heritage. Because true Jews are believers in Jesus Christ, aren't they? True Jews. So we, we get grafted into that. So in reality, by rejecting the Jewish Messiah, they have renounced their status as true Jews. When they reject the Jesus, they renounce their status. And that is why Jesus calls them liars. And because they fell for the lie that came from Satan. And therefore they become a synagogue, because they still function as a synagogue, but a synagogue of Satan. I think we'll get one more done, maybe two, we'll see how we go. I know your deeds, Pergamum. And let's turn to Pergamum in Revelation 2, uh, verse 13. 
This is an interesting one. And it says in verse 13, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear. So he sees Satan's throne is in Pergamum. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Uh, they were commended for remaining true, remaining true to his name, even in the midst of living in the city where Satan has his wrestling play, where, where he lives. They lived in that city, yet they were still true to Jesus. See, these must have been a great people. Remain faithful in the days of his martyr, Antipas, which we history doesn't have much knowledge of Antipas, only in here, that he was martyred and he was a faithful man. But they were rebuked for tolerating those who hold to the teaching of Balaam. And we're going to talk about Balaam in just a second as well. And they're also rebuked for tolerating those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We can't tolerate in the church anything except the truth of the word. Amen. We can't embrace other concepts and ideas that come outside of this and bring it in. And, uh, you know, these were the things that were brought in in those days. But there's, there's teachings that get brought into churches and, and you've got to be aware of them. You don't want them coming in and infiltrating into the pure word of God, you know. Because it does, it doesn't really affect the, the church. And they were exhorted to repent. And they were then warned, or I will fight them with the sword of my mouth. So here's the one with the sword that comes out of his mouth. Now, you can't imagine what that would look like. But it's, it's uh, you know, it, it, it must be the most powerful thing. Because Jesus created the world and the universe with a word. He spoke... Now, that word is double-edged. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. So he has that sword. It's like it's going to divide soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything will be uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him who, to whom we must give an account. You know, he's a powerful God. That comes out of his mouth. That comes out of his mouth. Judgment. That's what it means. That's a sort of judgment. The word. With his word, he can give you eternal life or he can condemn you for eternity. With his word. Two ways. Bang, bang. Powerful God. Powerful God. Satan's throne is in Pergamum. So other than temples to emperors and even to the goddess Roma, Pergamum held the high honour of hosting and maintaining a temple to Zeus. Father of all gods, and man and the ruler, father of all gods and man, and the ruler of Olympians on Mount Olympia in accordance with the ancient Greek beliefs. So Zeus was closely associated with the Roman deity Jupiter, whose name means the sky, prince and power of the air. 
Scott here, the Roman deity Jupo, whose name means the sky, or literally the heavenly father God. So claiming to be the heavenly father, that's Zeus. The altar to Zeus was one of the most impressive structures in Pergamum. The altar's stairs, columns, and sculpted sides once stood 40 feet or 12 meters high. So this must have been an incredible thing. Uh, anyone here been to Athens and seen the um, Acropolis? You know, and we, we were down uh, at the bottom of the Acropolis um, and uh, at, the, at the base, and we're walking around um, where we went past the Temple of the Giants. Remember that? And these were only just remnants of these giants and stuff, but we were looking at these sculptures. They were massive, and, and I took photos of them and then later looked at them and gone, that didn't look too big, you know, in the photos. But when you're there and you're actually there and you're beholding them and they're massive statues. Now, they wouldn't have been anything like this, you know, altar to Zeus. And obviously, God sees Zeus as Satan in a mythological sense. That's who he represented. He's the king of all the gods or the highest god of all. Many have suggested that this altar to Zeus is what is meant by the throne of Satan in verse 13. But there exists a number of other possibilities, such as the Asclepius cult headquarters or a concentration of the imperial and Roman cult in that city. The Roman antiquity, the image of a sword, and especially the double-edged sword, was highly symbolic in those days. Christ introduced himself to the assembly of Pergamum as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. If the above identification of the throne of Satan as Roman imperial cult is correct, then it would make perfect sense for Christ here to be presented as someone with the authority of the double-edged sword. So what he's saying is you have the sword on your shields, you have this sword representing your authority, your power, but here's the one who has it in his mouth. He has great power and authority, higher than all of your gods. Satan's throne, it says clearly it's in Pergamum, and Pergamon was located in current-day Bergama, which is the Izmar province of Turkey. And whether this means Satan's throne is now in Bergama or not, I'm not sure. It's hard to speculate. But what is certain is Satan had his throne in Pergamon in the first century. Because it says so. It's where his throne was. Now, I don't think Satan is limited to being in one spot, I've, uh, in the sense I'm not saying he's omnipresent. I'm just saying I don't think he has to be there. He could be anywhere. Uh, some people I was reading say that um, these altars that were, were made when, when Christianity was accepted as the uh, uh, national or state religion of, of Rome and all that sort of stuff, that they took those altars and built them in Rome, and now that's the headquarters for where uh, Satan is and, and, and so on. But I wasn't meant to mention it, but I have. But you can look at it in many different ways. So we know from Scripture that Satan is the God of this world. Amen? Yes. 1 John 5.19. Let's have a look at that. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. The whole world is under the control of. This world that we're living in, you could just about say Satan's throne is the world now. Because the whole world is under control of it. And we have to live under that, just as Pergamum had to live under that. We've got to remain true to his name, even though we are under, in living in a world that's under the God Satan, or God with a little G. Yeah. yeah. And um, 
we, we must actually understand that and acknowledge that. So something like what um, Judah was saying today about the armour of God, that we, how important it is that we place that armour on because we are attacked on a daily basis as Christians. We get attacked all sorts of ways. Actually, Satan has a way of getting to each and every one of us. Some of us can, you know, can be affected by some things but not other things. And then the next person won't be affected by the things you're affected by but are affected by other things. So we're all getting attacked. We've got to put on the armour of God. We've got to pray for each other. That's why Paul's always exhorting, pray for me and pray for each other because we've got to keep holding and lifting each other up so that we can you know, get through this time on this planet and, and come out in Christ. Amen? And not, not renounce his name at any point. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. And it says, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, The God of this age... The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So we're told that Satan is the God of this age. Again, little g. Not God the Father. All right. Who was Balaam and Balak? I'm just going to finish on trying to get through a couple of the things in relation to Pergamum. We can read about Balaam and Balak in Numbers 22 to 24. A fascinating story about King Balak of Moab, who in fear of the nation of Israel, which was moving into his territory, hired the prophet Balaam to curse them. Balaam, however, could not curse them as he spoke only what God had him say, and each time Balaam blessed the Israelites. Who's ever read that story? I would have fired Balaam on the first one. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, you know, come and he just blessed them and said, well, come over here and uh, we'll set up another altar and let's see if you can curse them this time. And he blessed them. And he, I think he did it three times. Like, I've learned my lesson. Like, mate, you're not the guy for this job. I'll go and get another prophet. But, no. but then he gave him some good advice at the end for, from his standpoint. We'll talk about that. However, Balaam gave advice to Balak in how to cause Israel to sin and fall out of favour with their God. So following the advice, Balak sent Midianite women to entice Israel into sexual immorality and they then caused Israel to worship Baal of Peor. And whoever's read through the book of Kings and the book of Chronicles and even Judges, you'll find that they were constantly worshipping Baal. Right through, right through. They were setting up alders and, you know, these... God would raise up men to come and smash down the alders and all that sort of stuff in the high places and all this sort of thing. Um, but Israel were constantly sinning. It's like from that point, that advice that Balak gave, uh, Balaam gave Balak had uh, uh, an entire effect on the Jewish nation from then on for the rest of their uh, Old Testament history. They struggled with it and eventually they were kicked out of Israel as a result. And so that's why in Pergamum they talk about this. Because it was the corrupting influence of the Jewish people. This whole thing with Balaam and Balak. And it was could have been, and what they were saying is, don't tolerate it in this church because it will corrupt the church as well. The church will fall to the same thing that the Old Testament Jewish nation fell to. Does that make sense? Yeah, so it's a pretty serious issue. Pretty serious issue. And... I'm up to Thyatira, and I'm not going to do it today because um, I'll have you here till probably you know, 12 o'clock, and I think you've had enough. Right? Who's, who's had a 
Full of the word of God today? Yep, did you eat well? Yep, chew, chew, chew your food. <laughs> Get indigestion. And uh, I just pray that, Lord, that your spirit will just move in all of our hearts. And thank you for this wonderful group of people that are here today, Lord Jesus. Thank you for this church. And I just thank you that uh, they've received this, uh, 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 the word today with uh, joy and gladness of heart. And I just pray that there will be great blessing that will come upon all of us as we continue to look into these things and continue to grow stronger in the Word and, and uh, also take on board some of the um, uh, exhortations and commendations and, and so on that are in these books and apply them to our own lives, Lord, so that we can become better Christians, that we won't fall for the same things that some of these churches have, have, uh, were falling to back in the first century. So... Uh, May your spirit just move among us and, and uh, guide and direct our paths every day. And may your blessing be upon everyone. Cover them all in your precious blood, Lord Jesus. And fill them with your spirit. And may their week be absolutely awesome, Lord Jesus, as they uh, pursue you all week long. And let our love not grow cold, but let our love just get hotter and hotter and hotter for you as we just, uh, just love you all week long. And I pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.